often in our somewhat simplistic thinking in the depths of our hearts about whether our salvation is real or not, whether or not our forgiveness in Christ is really lasting, really permanent. In my experience speaking with believers, and, and I've had the chance to speak to many, many believers in the years of my ministry, very often we tend toward a simplistic idea of thinking that maybe subconsciously we're thinking this, we don't say it out loud, but we have this view of God as if he is just impatient and just waiting for you to mess up your own salvation. As if God is just waiting for that moment when he can say, aha, that's one sin too many, your salvation is now forfeit. Even though you would never say that you believe in salvation by works, and yet that's sort of a subconscious thought we might struggle with, and and I've had people tell me this. You might not consciously even think in those terms, but let me ask you these questions. Have you ever thought of God as being constantly angry with you? I know some of you have. Have you ever thought that maybe God was changing his mind about you? Some of you in this room have expressed that fear to me. Have you ever thought that the sin that continually plagues you is is making God continually distance himself from you and pretending like he doesn't know you? At the very worst, we can think of God almost as our adversary who just knows we're going to blow it and will say at judgment day, I told you so. Or maybe in your mind, God becomes, at the very least, a, a neutral party. Yes, I saved you, but let's see if you can hang on. I'll just sit back and watch and wait and see what happens. Now, as we've spoken of before, this is really purely a man-centered view of salvation. It has no basis in Scripture at all. But I'm really amazed at the fear or the ignorance which often plagues the evangelical world. That those who claim to be in Christ, claim to have been saved by grace, now fearfully attempt to hang on by means of their own goodness or by means of emotion, by means of generating some sort of experience, creating a situation now in which you view God as ready to drop you the moment you've gone too far. But actually, according to Scripture, nothing could be further from the truth. God isn't angry with you in the sense of being ready to revoke your salvation at any time and God certainly isn't some neutral party wondering if you're going to make it all the way to heaven or not. And so if God isn't perpetually angry with you, and if he isn't merely a neutral party speculating as to whether or not your salvation will last, what position does God take in regard to your salvation? Where where does he stand? And that's the topic of our examination of John 17 tonight. We've been working our way topically through this chapter is we're uh, going straight to the cross through John 17, 18, 19, and 20, all the way to the Resurrection Sunday. And we've been looking at blessed assurance here in John 17 and finding these rich pieces of objective evidence by which we can be assured of our salvation. That rather than this deceptive look at some historical moment in the past or an emotion or a prayer you prayed, your faith rather being grounded in experience or memory or history is grounded on the solid evidence that salvation could never possibly be a temporary arrangement. It is, after all, called eternal life. And so tonight, we want to look at one piece of evidence that you can have blessed assurance because of the Trinity's protection. The Trinity's protection. What is God's position? 
God is not perpetually angry with you for just wait and just waiting to take away your salvation. And he certainly isn't just a neutral party taking bets as to whether or not you're going to make it in heaven. God isn't up there saying, hey, Michael, come here. I'm going to give you two to one odds on this guy over here. Quite the opposite, actually. What we're going to see tonight is that God is vitally invested in guarding you, in keeping you, in sheltering you. As a matter of fact, all three persons of the triune God are involved in the work of preserving your salvation. And all three are reflected here in John 17. And so I want to very simply show you tonight, God the Father is protecting your salvation. God the Spirit is protecting your salvation. And God the Son is protecting your salvation. And I do so in that order because while our faith is most definitely Trinitarian, the fact is, is that Christ is a major focus for us. And so I'm going to put most of our emphasis on the fact that God the Son is protecting your salvation. We relate to God the Son the most easily because He is a man like us. He is a human being. And that is the whole purpose of God coming as a man so that we might enjoy that bridge between us and God. But first, and we'll do the first two rather briefly, let's look at the fact that God the Father is protecting your salvation. God the Father is protecting your salvation. And we see this in verse 11. The assertion that Jesus makes, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So Jesus has requested that his Father keep all who belong to Christ. Here the word keep has the connotation of guarding, of keeping safe, of of providing security. And Jesus asks his father, he says, keep them in your name. Now we've already covered the idea of the name of God, but we'll just do a, a brief review here. We've seen that the idea of the name of God is theologically rich, it's deep. God's name speaks to his reputation, like we might say of someone's good name god's name speaks to his attributes that his name represents all that god is all that that he does we might also understand that god's name speaks to his superiority even jesus christ himself is the one who possesses what the name that is above all names and so there's a richness to the idea of the name of god but here the idea of the name of god has a very specific use The Greek preposition here translated in your name can have what's called an instrumental force. It means it's not just the sphere of something that I'm located in your name, but it is the instrument, it's the channel, it's the means for something to happen. In other words, you can viably translate this little passage that Jesus is saying, Holy Father, keep them by your name. Keep them by means of your name. And so the name of God here speaks of the might, the power of God as the instrument by which the Father keeps you. When David was on the run from King Saul, Saul was seeking to kill David and David wrote about this time and his prayer at this time in Psalm 54 verse 1. He said, O God, save me by your name. And vindicate me with your might, or by your might, rather. And this is what's called in Hebrew poetry, we've talked about this before, synonymous parallelism, meaning that by your name is the same thing as by your might and by your power. This is exactly what 
Solomon wrote in Proverbs 18, verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. This is exactly what Jesus, the picture that he used to declare that the Father would keep you safe in your salvation, the might and the power of God to protect you. Speaking of all the elect who have been given to Jesus by the Father, Jesus comforts us in John 10, 29. He says, my Father who has given them, that is you and me, who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That is a declaration of the power of God. When you think of a picture of snatching something out of someone's hand, what is the what is the picture that that person is making by means of holding you? It is the picture of a fist. Something is in your hand. There's power. Notice that Jesus doesn't say nobody is able to talk God out of saving you. Nobody is able to trick God out of saving you. That's intellectual. He simply goes straight to power. No one can be more powerful than the Father. And so Jesus pictures God the Father with a physical hand, a a hand so mighty and powerful on the outside, and might I say this also metaphorically, so soft and safe on the inside, and no force or power or dominion can pry his hand open to get at you. That alone is enough to give you assurance, to, to help you to rest easy and to breathe well that God the Father is protecting your salvation. But we could also look at the fact that God the Spirit is protecting your salvation. Now, John 17 doesn't state this directly. We have to work our way toward this, but we are drawn to a very interesting statement that Jesus makes in verse 15. In verse 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Keep them from the evil one. How is it that God will protect his saints from the evil one, from the clutches of the devil who is Satan? Well, this is clearly the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When I was a little kid, I had an uncle who was an amateur theologian. And his theology was, and I remember learning this theology late one night when I was laying awake in a cabin with my uncle and my dad, and they were talking theology downstairs, and I'm up in the loft laying awake, and I'm dying inside because my uncle is telling story after story. He was a flaming charismatic about Christians who had their souls taken away from them by the devil. And there I am laying up there begging God, don't let Satan get me. Don't let Satan get me. And I was terrified. If you're a Christian, Satan can't get you. You want to know why? Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, in him, that is Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Can I put this in terms we all understand that if the devil tried to get you, the Holy Spirit is saying, no, this is my house. Great protection. And these are important words. Sealed and guarantee and inheritance. Sealed is a word that means secured. It means marked out, certified, enclosed. It's a very safe word. And in fact, here in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it's a passive verb translated rightly in the past tense something that happened to you you didn't make it happen it happened to you in the past a one-time action that rendered you set and secure how often have you been sealed by the holy spirit once and it's done 
Sealed for what? He is the guarantee. This is another interesting word. This is a word that literally means the first payment or the first installment. It's sometimes explained like a down payment, which serves as a guarantee of future and final payments. Payments of what? Of our inheritance. An inheritance, this is a Greek word that means your legal portion or your portion by law, that which is legally coming to you, that which is now legally yours. And of course, this inheritance is to receive all the blessings of eternal life and bliss with our God for all time. And so it is the Spirit of God which enables us to have confidence that the second most powerful being in all the creation, Satan himself, has no hold on you, no claim on you. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is our guarantee, the first payment of our inheritance. This is stunning. Do you realize that all the bliss and blessing of eternal life that you will have, you already have a small piece? You've received the first payment, and that is the sealing of the Spirit of God. And that belongs to you. And so God the Father is protecting your salvation. God the Spirit is protecting your salvation I'd like to spend the remainder of our time examining the fact that God the Son is protecting your salvation. We see here in verse 12, speaking in particular of his disciples, Jesus said, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now we saw last week that Judas was lost because he chose to be and because he was the fulfillment of the prophecy and yet God held him completely responsible, completely culpable, completely liable for his own rebellion and hatred of Christ. But it does stand to reason that if Jesus can, by design and by plan, keep the remaining 11 disciples safe, then he certainly can keep the rest of us safe in salvation. As a matter of fact, in basically the same breath in which Jesus proclaimed that no one would snatch you from the Father's hand. He says in John 10, 27 and 28, literally in the same breath, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And I have this picture in my mind of you inside the hand of Christ who is inside the hand of the Father. This double, and if we include the Holy Spirit, this triple protection. But how precisely does the Son of God protect you? Well, first of all, He is protecting you because He's protecting His own interests. If you don't keep your salvation, then He doesn't get His kingdom because a kingdom without kingdom citizens is a little bit lame. You know, it's like having a bunch of uh, castles and things like that with no people in them. And so He is protecting His own interests. So what is the ministry of Jesus Christ in the mighty protection of His people? I think a a fascinating way for us to grasp the protective ministry of the Son of God is to see what he did before he was born. Now, if you've been at Grace Bible Church for any length of time, you've probably heard us talk about the pre-incarnate appearances of the second member of the Trinity, the Old Testament manifestations of Christ himself. But not only is this topic fascinating, it is extremely instructive as to how Jesus protects his people. And we are, of course, speaking of the Old Testament appearances of what the biblical writers, seven different ones, by the way, over the period of a thousand years, call the angel of the Lord. 
the angel of the Lord. There are somewhere in the vicinity of 30 direct mentions of the angel of the Lord. In the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord serves as a technical and a specific reference to the appearance of God on earth. Well, which member of the Trinity might this be? God the Father is spirit and is never seen. God the Spirit is spirit and is never seen. That leaves one option, God the Son. There are multiple instances in the Old Testament of God speaking to the angel of the Lord. And so we see a clear reference to the Trinity there. How do we know that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, first of all, is God the Son himself? Well, first of all, angel in the Bible doesn't always speak specifically of the created spirit beings of heaven. It simply means messenger. And in fact, in the Old Testament alone is used over a hundred times to speak of people, of human messengers. But there are multiple pieces of strong evidence that the angel of the Lord is God. And I won't go into this in detail. I'll just give you a quick list. The angel of the Lord is spoken of as God. He is addressed as God. He claimed to be God. He spoke only as God could speak. He is treated as God. And he does things only God can do. He exercised divine attributes, power, authority, justice, omniscience. He receives worship. So the evidence that the angel of the Lord is God is overwhelming. There really is no argument for that. But really what we would see if we did a survey or a study of the angel of the Lord, which we're about to do, you would see that the angel of the Lord serves one major high purpose, and that is protection. Protection. He safeguards the divine provisions made to prepare for the coming of Christ through whom salvation would come at the cross. Now, did you notice something? Who's he guarding? He's guarding himself. He's guarding his future coming to earth. The the angel of the Lord was protecting his own future ministry, thereby protecting you. And all through the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord appears, it's, it's to protect and it's to guide and it's to lead and it's to help Israel get all the way to Bethlehem. And then after Bethlehem, how many times you've heard this before is the angel of the Lord mentioned from then on? Zero. Because now we know his name. It's Jesus. There are so many great angel of the Lord passages, we can't turn to all of them. So you might note the references But I want to just survey for you the protecting ministry of Jesus Christ as illustrated by his pre-incarnate ministry as the angel of the Lord. And so similar to this morning, we'll just kind of use some key words. First of all, he protects through providence. He protects through providence. And we spoke of this briefly this morning, but there is some overlap here. We see this protection through providence demonstrated in the story of Hagar and Ishmael in Genesis chapter 16. And you recall that Hagar was the maidservant of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Sarah had grown impatient, waiting for the promised son to be born. And so she suggested to Abraham that he have a son through her servant, Hagar. The son was Ishmael, and ultimately this sinful act of impatience led to the family splintering. And in fact, in Genesis 16, Hagar is pregnant now by Abraham. And of course, Sarah says, wait a minute. She's pregnant because of my husband and she gets mad. She's furious with her such that Hagar ran away. Genesis 16 records, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. 
And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing for truly. She said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Did you notice how Hagar identifies the angel of the Lord as God, the God of seeing? So Hagar went back. Now you fast forward about 16 years and now the son of promise has been born, Isaac. Now he's a small boy who's recently weaned. And once again, the family splinters. And Sarah insists that Abraham get rid of Hagar, get rid of Ishmael, who's now a young teenager. God told Abraham it would be fine because God would make a great nation of Ishmael as well. And so Abraham sent Hagar and Ishmael out with a little food and water. And Genesis 21 records when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. And then she went and sat opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept and God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink and God was with the boy. Now, this is very interesting. The angel of the Lord is the means of providence because Ishmael, what was he the product of? He was the product of sinful impatience by both Sarah and Abraham. And yet the angel of the Lord was protecting Ishmael. Now, why is this? Well, God already promised Abraham that he would be the father of a multitude of nations. Genesis 17, 4. And ultimately we see representatives of All of these nations up in heaven glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. We see in Revelation 5, the church falling down in worship, singing a new song, which includes, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Meaning that for all eternity, there will be saved Ishmaelites praising the name of Jesus Christ. And of course, this providence to save people from every people group begins to be multiplied on the day of Pentecost. Visiting and staying in Jerusalem were Jews from all over the known world. And on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 records that at the coming of the Holy Spirit, the apostles were miraculously able to proclaim Christ, proclaim the gospel in many different languages. Acts 2 records 15 different languages. 3,000 were saved and ultimately would begin to bring the gospel to their own homelands. And so the angel of the Lord provides providence, protects through providence. The second way he protects, the Son of God protects through discipline, through discipline. Now, this might be surprising in the realm of protection, but it's actually a major thrust of the ministry of the angel of the Lord. And this discipline isn't merely punishment for disobedience, 
It includes clear object lessons for future benefit, as good discipline ought to. For example, Genesis 22 records God commanding Abraham to sacrifice the child of promise, Isaac. Abraham is faithful to obey no matter what and takes Isaac to the mountain that God had commanded him to go. And Abraham gets all the way to the point of striking Isaac who was on the altar. Genesis 22 records, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, this did a couple of marvelous things for Israel's future, this discipline, this object lesson. First of all, it definitely established Abraham as the greatest man of faith that any of them would ever hope to aspire to. In fact, Hebrews eleven nineteen tells us that since Isaac was the child of promise through whom would come all of God's covenant promises to Abraham, that Abraham believed the only option if he killed Isaac was that God would raise him then from the dead. And Hebrews 11 says, in fact, that in the manner of speaking, he did raise Isaac from the dead. But secondly, and, and more to the point of what God did through this matter of discipline, what does discipline do for you? It humbles you. And after this, never, ever, ever could Israel legitimately say that she was God's chosen people because of how great she was, how big she was, how she had conquered all of these other peoples or how she impressed God. Nope, quite the opposite. The nation of Israel was the product of God blessing a 100-year-old man with a miracle baby named Isaac and that same Isaac was one knife stroke away from death. Meaning then that Isaac's son Jacob would never be born. Jacob's son Judah would never be born. Judah's descendant David would never be born. And David's descendant Jesus would never be born. And so Israel then would not exist. Messiah would not come. And now because of the angel of the Lord, no one can take credit for Israel and for the coming of Messiah because it almost didn't happen. It was literally one second away from all of history being altered. But the angel of the Lord also disciplined for direct violations of God's covenant terms with Israel. When God took Israel from Egypt to the promised land, he commanded them to completely wipe out and drive out all the peoples before them. Judges 128 records, but they did not drive them out completely. And so God gathered his people, all of them, to issue them a rebuke. Judges 2 Begins Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord had spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. It was a verbal spanking on a divine magnitude. Many generations later, God would once again be angry with Israel and so he would use the sin of King David as a means by which to discipline the entire nation. 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21 both record that David became proud 
He decided to take a census as somewhat of a measure of his own greatness. Well, very soon, David's conscience struck him hard. He repented, and through the prophet Gad, the Lord gave David three choices as to discipline. Parents, this is a great thing to do with your kids. I am going to discipline you. I'll give you three choices. You pick. This is exactly what God did. You can have three years of famine, three months of running away from your enemies, or three days of pestilence in the land. David chose the pestilence, the disease. And the reason was not because it was shorter, but because he said the other two put me in the hands of men. I would rather be in the hands of God. And so 2 Samuel 24 beginning in verse 15, records that the Lord killed 70,000 men before he relented. 70,000, that's an astronomical number. And then the text says that the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. And David spoke, quote, to the angel who was striking the people. And he said, behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Now, what David didn't see, he didn't understand behind the scenes, was that 2 Samuel 24 begins with the fact that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And so when David asked the question, these sheep, what have they done? God knows the answer to that question, which David doesn't know. But did you notice who the instrument of God's discipline was? The angel of the Lord. And in case there's any doubt... First Chronicles 21.12 says directly that the angel of the Lord was spreading the pestilence. And what was the outcome in the heart of David? What did it do to him? First Chronicles 21.30 says he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Sometimes we say, oh, Jesus is my friend, and that is true. But perhaps we should remember that Jesus is our king, and he does bear a sword of discipline. David was humbled, And he was reminded who the true king of Israel is. Of course, part of the protecting ministry of Christ is discipline. Hebrews 12 assures us that God disciplines those whom he loves. We're commanded in Matthew 18 to keep the church pure by disciplining those who would rebel and turn against Christ and removing them even from our midst. That is the protection of Christ. It is his protecting ministry. The Lord disciplined Jerusalem. Because they rejected him as Messiah, Christ predicted that the city and the temple would be destroyed, but not before weeping over his beloved people. We see probably most directly the Lord Jesus, the head of the church, examining seven local churches as recorded in Revelation 2 and 3. Five merited reproof and correction. That if Ephesus didn't restore their first love, he would remove the lampstand, the blessing and the presence of God from them. If Pergamum didn't stop going along with false teaching, Jesus would come and start a war in the church against all who continued holding the false teaching. When churches split, by the way, what is that? That is the Lord Jesus coming in and saying, we're going to divide the men from the boys spiritually here. And that's often what happens. If Thyatira didn't stop tolerating sexual immorality in her midst, Jesus would strike with illness and with death those who refused to take sin seriously. If Sardis didn't stop being seeker-friendly and trying to impress the world with empty good deeds, then Jesus would come like a thief and set himself against the church. And if Laodicea didn't stop equating wealth and riches with spirituality and being immature and shallow in their faith, having essentially left Christ behind, 
He said, I will spit you out of my mouth. Listen, the, the local church should be aware that Jesus Christ is evaluating. He is evaluating. Are the shepherds shepherding the sheep? Are the sheep submitting to the word of God as given by the shepherds? He is evaluating. Now, why is he disciplining the church? Why does he do this? Well, because he's guarding his flock. He's molding them. I love how brand new parents, sometimes, not all of you, but sometimes, some of you say, we're going to mold our child purely with love. And then when they're three, you say, we're going to mold our child purely with love and a stick because we need both. Jesus promised in Matthew 16 that he would build his church and part of the building of the church is to discipline the church, to make them, make us like him as a good father disciplines his child to mold him and mature him. And so the son protects through providence. He protects through discipline. There's a third way he protects. The son protects through leadership. Through leadership. Exodus 3 records the famous meeting of Moses with God Exodus 3, verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. This is not God appearing as a burning bush. This is God appearing in a burning bush. The angel of the Lord identified himself in verse 6. In case there's any doubt, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The angel of the Lord, clearly God. And the angel of the Lord told Moses why they were having this meeting. He says in Exodus 3, 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who were in Egypt and have heard their cries because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. There's a note of compassion, of pity, of empathy for his people. And so God had come to deliver his people and to give them a shepherd that they could see that they could relate to in the person of Moses. And so God commissioned Moses then to lead Israel. And in the same way, we see this compassion and pity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 9, beginning in verse 35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without what? A shepherd. And so in the time of Jesus' ministry, he himself shepherded God's people by offering eternal life to them. But you recall from our celebration banquet just a couple of weeks ago, what Jesus did immediately after this declaration of his compassion? You remember what he did? He told the disciples to pray for harvesters For the fields of the lost in order to bring to the elect a salvation. And in the very next chapter, he sends them out. He sends his disciples into the mission field for a short preaching tour. And so the way Christ would provide and protect his people, provide for and protect his people, is to provide leaders, to provide shepherds. And now in the church age, this is no different. Ephesians 4 recounts the ascension of Christ and what he did at that point. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
And here's the protection. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. The Lord Jesus Christ is concerned for protecting his own and he wants to protect you in your doctrine, in your theology, in your understanding of who God is, in your understanding of the word of God. One of my favorite things about being a pastor is seeing the person who's been at Grace for a week or two or three and their eyes as big as plates. And then to hear from them the weeping and the sadness and sometimes the anger Why didn't anybody teach me the word of God? I've been in church for 40 years and never heard this. God gave the shepherds. Gave the shepherds of the church as his gift to protect them, to keep them spiritually safe through the preached word of God by striving for the knowledge of the Son of God. And yes, the under-shepherds of Christ's church are imperfect sinners, but can you imagine the church of Jesus Christ without shepherds? Without elders, without our pastors, sheep going astray at every turn, no direction, no continuity of doctrine or practice. It would be chaos. And so the Son of God protects through leadership. So fourth way he protects is illustrated through the angel of the Lord. He protects through rescue, through just flat-out rescue. The time of the judges in which Israel was without a king continually following into disobedience as a nation. This was a time where you might say the angel of the Lord made regular appearances. As God would discipline Israel with foreign oppressors and as God would relent in his mercy, the angel of the Lord would appear to come to their aid. For example, Judges chapter 6 recounts the call of Gideon to save Israel from the oppressing Midianites. Judges 6 tells us that the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, commissioned him in God's power to save Israel from this people surrounding them. Judges 13 relates the angel of the Lord appearing to a woman from the tribe of Dan. Judges 13, 3, And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. The woman told her husband, whose name was Manoah, that one she called a man of God like an angel had appeared to her, and Manoah Didn't want to be left out of the action. So he prayed, Oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we shall do with the child who will be born. And so the angel of the Lord came to the woman again. So this time she said, Can you hang on here just for a second? And ran and got her husband. Well, Manoah offered a burnt offering in worship of the angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord received it. As a matter of fact, as the flames were going up to heaven, the angel of the Lord went up to heaven in those very flames, telling us, by the way, that when Jesus ascended into heaven, it wasn't his first time. And these humble parents, of course, had the miracle child named Samson. And Samson would be a judge of Israel and through his might and strength push back against the oppressing Philistines, rescuing the idea of rescue, that's, that's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? This is the heart of the gospel of Christ, that Christ has rescued us from sin and protected us for a day of, of joining him. Now, this doesn't have anything to do with preserving us from death or from trials, but rather rescuing us through death and through trials. Right before his execution, the Apostle Paul wrote, 
2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Paul had great assurance through the rescue of Christ, as we also may be assured of our rescue. And it's through Christ, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your sting? I, I mean, Christians, it's not just that we can get through death or that we can deal with it. Can I say this for the Christian? Death is your friend. Death has become our friend because we're protected from all the horror of what death means to anyone else. For us, death is a doorway to go home. And so the Son of God protects through providence and discipline, leadership, rescue. It's another way, speaking of rescuing from enemies, the Son of God protects through retribution. Through retribution. Revenge. You think the discipline of God is hard to swallow? Better by far to be the recipient of His loving discipline than the recipient of His awe-filled wrath. Second Kings begins with the account of the wicked king of the northern kingdom of Israel, Ahaziah. Ahaziah took a fall, and he's in critical condition. And so Ahaziah, instead of seeking God, sent messengers to go inquire of the false god Baal as to whether or not he would recover. But Elijah found out, Elijah the prophet, where the messengers were going and why. Second Kings 1, beginning in verse 3, But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, that is the northern kingdom, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. Well, Ahaziah heard about this, didn't like this. And so he attempted to intimidate Elijah. He sent a squad of soldiers to Elijah who were promptly consumed by fire from heaven. A second squad met the same fate. And the third squad commander said, can we just talk for a minute here before we go any further? And now the angel of the Lord sent Elijah personally to deliver the message of doom to Ahaziah. The angel of the Lord was giving retribution to a wicked ruler and thus continuing to spiritually protect whatever remnant of true worshipers remained in Israel. Probably the most famous account, though, of the retribution of the angel of the Lord is given in both 2 Kings 19 and Isaiah 37. You recall that the armies of the Assyrian emperor Sennacherib had assembled around Jerusalem. They laid siege to to Israel's capital after having decimated the last stronghold protecting Jerusalem, the city of Lachish. And 185,000 soldiers, an overwhelming force surrounded the city. And listen, military experts have said you probably only needed 10% of that to take a city the size of Jerusalem. And so it's a hopeless cause. 185,000 soldiers. But in response to King Hezekiah's prayers and his humility, Isaiah 37 records, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. 
And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. The psalmist speaks of the retribution of the angel of the Lord. Psalm 35, 5 and 6. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. We think often of hell as the place where the evil go and God is not anywhere near there. But the book of Revelation tells us that the Lamb of God, otherwise known in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, is presiding over the judgment of hell. And He is there in His all-knowing nature, in His all-powerful nature, in His everywhere-present nature. He is the instrument of God's retribution. Listen, this is serious business because John 5.22, Jesus says that his father, quote, has given all judgment to the son. And this is important for you as a Christian because if you have ever felt oppressed by the wickedness of the world, if this has even caused you to question your own salvation because of temptations, because of the wiles of a sin-ridden society, would you remember this, that someday the Son of God will separate you from all that is sinful, separate you from all who would rebel against Him. He will separate you from all that is wicked. He will eradicate sin. And He will consign all who rejected Him to an eternal punishment far, far away from you. Why? Not only for His own righteousness sake, but ultimately He is furious with all who would come against his people because Christ Jesus is fiercely devoted to you and he will give retribution to all who would stand against you. So the Son of God protects through discipline and providence, leadership, rescue, retribution. He protects through revelation. Through revelation. I won't belabor this point since we covered this in detail this morning, but the angel of the Lord is seen in his protection through the accurate and precise revelation. Aren't you glad when you hear the gospel that the gospel is not, well, it's sort of something like this. No, we need precision. We need accuracy. When the angel of the Lord was meeting with Moses in the midst of the burning bush, he gave Moses a promise concerning how it was Moses would lead his people. Exodus 4, verse 12, Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what to speak. You notice he didn't say, I'll put the right thoughts into your mind or into your heart. He goes totally, I'm, I'm gonna, it's, it's this picture. I'm going to get a hold of your mouth and just make you, uh, uh, and say the right words. Because God is concerned with the accuracy, the precision, the detail of his revelation. Numbers 22, a, a fascinating story. The king of the Moabites, Balak, was afraid of Israel as Israel was getting ready to invade Canaan. And so he sent messengers to Balaam. Balaam was a false prophet. And he basically said, for a sum of money, I want you to curse Israel and bless Moab. And so, for a fee, Balaam said he would listen to God and bring a positive word to the king of Moab. It was quite a healthy business he had running. But much to Balaam's surprise, God actually did speak to him. And he said, you shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Numbers twenty-two, twelve. But there was money to be made, and so against the instructions of God, Balaam saddled his donkey to go to the king of Moab anyway. The angel of the Lord then appeared first to the donkey, because the donkey had no trouble believing in God, apparently. 
But the donkey went crazy, crushed Balaam against a wall on the path. And so Balaam is whipping the donkey over and over again. And the donkey lays down because even a donkey knows you should bow in the presence of God. And boy, Balaam was mad at that donkey. He said, if I had a sword, I would kill you right now. Quote, and the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And what's funny is that Balaam answers him, well, no. <laughs> and Balaam doesn't even seem surprised. He's having a conversation with his donkey. But here's what did surprise Balaam. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord confronted Balaam and told him that his way is perverse and that Balaam was to speak only what the angel of the Lord tells him to speak. That you will not speak what is false. How vehemently the angel of the Lord, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, defends the word of truth and the truth of his word. Jesus promised in Matthew 5.18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. God has defended his truth. He has defended the scriptures for the past 3,500 years. No one has ever successfully changed the Bible. Many have tried All have failed. But the words of the Son of God have remained true. And this is such a huge comfort, as we said this morning. The gospel which you've believed, you've banked your entire entire eternity upon. It's the same unchanging gospel given 2,000 years ago from the lips of Jesus Christ himself, passed to the apostles and written in the New Testament. Let me give you one more way the Son of God protects And that is through encouragement. Through encouragement. Sorry, second to last way. Encouragement. Genesis 32, before meeting with his brother Esau, Jacob was met by a man who wrestled with him. Jacob was fearing for his life in the upcoming meeting with Esau, and the last thing he probably needed was to have some guy start wrestling with him in the dirt. But that's what happened. Jacob's afraid to meet with Esau. He has tricked him. He has cheated him. And he fears for his life. And so here he is in the middle of the night wrestling this guy in the dirt. Jacob seems to get the upper hand. But then the man touches Jacob's hip and blows it out of socket, which is just about physically impossible to do. So that gives Jacob a small hint. Hmm, I wonder if this is somebody besides a man. Jacob knew who he was. This is one who came to bless him and to help him. But Jacob held on and he said, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. And he did bless Jacob and he comforted him. And when we walked through Genesis, we said that the limp with which Jacob would walk with the rest of, for the rest of his life would remind him of the day that as Hosea 12 tells us, the angel of the Lord visited him. After the spiritual battle with the false prophets at Baal, of Baal at Mount Carmel, in which Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal to see whose God would do a miracle in front of all of Israel. Elijah won that battle. He executed hundreds of the false prophets of Baal. But now he's a wanted man. The wicked queen Jezebel is furious with Elijah. So Elijah ran into the wilderness for a whole day. He finally collapses under a tree and he 
says to the Lord, and maybe you've been in this moment, he says, would you please take my life? He doesn't want to live. He, he is empty. He's done. First Kings 19 records that the angel of the Lord came and he baked him food and he gave him water and he gave him rest and Elijah woke up and a second time the angel of the Lord gave him food and gave him water and strengthened him because God was strengthening him to continue his ministry of standing for the worship of the true living God and Elijah was depressed because he thought he was all alone and the angel of the Lord said no there are 7,000 men who are faithful how encouraging is that Psalm 34 contains one of our great comforts and encouragements concerning the angel of the Lord. Psalm 34, 7, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. How comforting that is. Listen, if you've come to faith in Christ, genuine, real faith, the Son of God gives you this classic encouragement in Matthew 28, 20. I am with you always to the end of the age. In other words, for the Christian, if I could use a double negative here, there will never be a time in all eternity where you are not with Christ. There will never be a time where Christ is not with you. That doesn't exist anymore. You have the Spirit of Christ in you right now. You, you will never, ever, ever have a time where you're separated from Christ, from the very one who is the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. By the way, what does this mean? This means that by default, the loss of your salvation is impossible. It's impossible. The Son of God disciplines through providence and discipline, leadership, rescue, retribution, revelation, encouragement, I saved my favorite one for last. This is overwhelming because he rescues through intercession. Through intercession. And now you're saying, now wait a minute. That's not an angel of the Lord concept. That's a New Testament concept. The book of Hebrews says that that Jesus Christ is our mediator, our intercessor. No. The Son of God has always been interceding for his people from long ago. Zechariah 1 records the word of the Lord coming to Zechariah in the late 6th century. And in this vision, an angel is speaking to Zechariah, sort of narrating the vision. And in the vision, another angel, a different angel, this one called the angel of the Lord, appears. And what does the angel of the Lord do? Exactly what he's doing in John 17. He intercedes in prayer for his people. Zechariah 1, beginning in verse 12, Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. The angel of the Lord intercessing to his father, on behalf of his people. And of course, in Zechariah chapter 12, we see the prophecy that Israel will once again receive mercy. Her eyes will be opened to behold her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me boil this down to something really, really easy for us to understand. There is only one person 
in all of creation, in all of the universe, who actually has the right to condemn you for your sin. And that is Christ himself. But he's not going to do it. You know how we know? Because he's the one who died for you. Why would he condemn you? This is exactly what Paul says in Romans 8.34, and this connects the intercession ministry. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What does this mean? It means that if the Lord Jesus, taking all these protective ministries as illustrated by the angel of the Lord, If the Lord Jesus goes to this much trouble to protect his investment in you that he made at the cross with his own body, with his own blood to purchase you, do you honestly believe that you can mess that up? Do you honestly believe that you can lose your salvation? You couldn't if you tried. You couldn't if you tried. You might even say, well, I'm going to just send my way all the way to hell and see what happens. Well, what will God do? Well, he'll just kill you and take you home to heaven. Problem solved. But he will not let you go. Because you might be in his hand and you might be squirming around a little bit. But he's not letting go. Not ever. Because the angel of the Lord, who was then born in Bethlehem, who then went to the cross, who was then raised from the dead, who has ascended to the right hand of the Father, is even now interceding for you. And you will make it because of his protective ministry. I don't know about you, but that thrills me. And when I sense my own sin oppressing me, when I sense doubts, when I feel the world of wickedness just surrounding me, I want to gravitate and grasp onto the hem of the garment of the angel of the Lord who will keep me safe. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, how glorious it is to be a part of your family. We are part of the family of God, which has always been a family, always been the Father and the Son and the Spirit, really the model of the family that you created on earth. And now we're part of your family. We're part of this glorious family known as the body of Christ, the church. And I would pray for any who are here or any who are listening to this who tremble in their beds at night, who tremble wondering whether their salvation is strong enough to hold, whether God is big enough to hang on despite doubts and sins of our poor little selves down here. I pray for any who are new in the faith and wondering what this assurance idea is about. I pray, Lord, that all would receive comfort from the protection of God our Father, that all would receive comfort from the protection of God the mighty, mighty Holy Spirit, and that all would receive comfort from the protection of the Son of God, who is a man like us and keeps us safe until we get home. We praise you and thank you for these truths. Might they enrich our lives and might they make us more like Christ. And it is in his name we pray.